Man, I don't know if you you felt like you've had one of those weeks. You just kind of wade through things, you know. It's it's like one thing after another, and it just uh, it continues to compound on your life and your heart and and just everything that's going on um, in our world and culture around us. And um, and the thing is, we draw comfort obviously from God's word. You know, when we read God's word. He didn't promise it was going to be easy, and I was reminded of that this week, that they never promised us that things were going to be easy, and so part of what we're called to do as believers in Christ is to be prepared, to be ready when those things do come, and so we're going to look uh, this morning at a part of the book of Kings. If you've been traveling with us, we started last Sunday walking through Judges. Sorry, I'm thinking of Kings, but Judges. Okay, Uh, the book of Judges, that'd be a whole nother series. Maybe we should do that sometimes. Uh, But we are in the book of Judges, uh, and so we started last week uh, bringing the nation of Israel, obviously, out of um, Joshua's reign and and rule as as leader and commander of the armies of God uh, into the promised land in the land of Canaan. And as they came in last week, uh, initially, they experienced some success. I mean, they were doing good. They were kicking down doors, taking names. Things seemed pretty good for the nation of Israel until they experienced some trouble. And once things got difficult, sound familiar, <laughs> okay, we tend to kind of fold. We tend to shrink back, right? And so that's what they did, and they, they began to compromise. And, and as they began to compromise, uh, not only the things that they were told to do, uh, but, but uh, as they began to just compromise their mission, uh, it, it started to fail. And in fact, God said at the end of all of our texts last week that he was no longer going to give their enemies into their hands. In fact, he was going to imprison them by their enemies. And so we learned that, that now God is going to raise up these judges, and these judges are going to stand and fight uh, for God and for the people. Uh, and so I want to point out before we get to our text this morning that one of the main reasons... That, that God uh, told Israel to go in and conquer these cities. It wasn't a, a nationalistic thing. It wasn't to get rid of a race. It wasn't a, a cleansing of a race or, or a creed or anything like that. Uh, it wasn't to gain money. It wasn't to gain wealth because he told them, when you take these cities, don't take any of their plunder for yourself. You're not supposed to take any of that for yourself. The whole reason that God raised up the nation of Israel was to show his glory in all the world and so that's what they were to do they were to show that God is the God of the universe and he's sovereign over everything but I think somewhere they forgot who their enemy really was so if you have your Bibles open to Judges chapter 2 we're going to be at the end of Judges chapter 2 and we're going to move into uh, chapter 3 and I'll share a couple of these stories of some of of the um, some of the judges and so we're going to begin in verse 21 and so these, these, these are the consequences. Well, I'll tell you what, let's start in 20. So in verse 20, it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people okay, have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua led before he died in order to test Israel by them. Okay, so let me stop right there. So, so what's going on here is God is saying, I'm no longer going to fight for you. I'm not going to drive these people out, okay, in front of you because I want to test you 
And so this is the test to see if your heart truly is with me, right? Remember we talked about that Joshua, the last kind of command he gave them or instruction, he said, choose you this day who you're going to serve. So it's kind of like, you know, Custer drawing that line, you know, in the sand, saying, if you're with me, come on this side. If you're not, stay over there. So God wants to know who is truly for me, who's truly with me. And, and so, and, and then he says, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel. And you notice, this is God's sovereign hand. He is leaving nations to test Israel. Remember that. That's going to be important. So he left these nations to test Israel, who had, who had not experienced uh, the wars in Canaan. And it was only in order that the, the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Remember last week we talked about um, how all of the generation had died out, right? And you had all those in the desert wandering that didn't get to go into the promised land. They had died out. And so now we have a new generation. And they didn't know, uh, apparently, about all the battles. They didn't know about all the things God had done. They didn't know about all of the battles that necessarily that had been won, or at least they had forgotten what had taken place. And then in verse 3, he says, These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines. Remember the Philistines? They're, they're a pretty big deal. Uh, in, in Israel's history, all of the Canaanites and, and the Sidonites and the Hivites uh, who lived at Mount Lebanon uh, from Mount uh, Bela-Mora uh, as far as Labo-Hamath, uh, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord again. Second time, where they're going to obey the commandments of the Lord. And then you have, you, he goes back again. He says, among the Canaanites are the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A lot of sites going on in there, okay? A lot of ites in there. So all of those are in this land. And said, and their daughters, and this is very significant. He's talking about Israel. Their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. Big no-no in the land of God. It was, a, it was a big thing to first give, you know, uh, intermarry, but not just that, but to literally serve their gods. Um, so when I was in, uh, I don't know if I, I may have shared this last week, forgive me if I did, uh, but when I was uh, in uh, South America uh, on mission, uh, we stayed at Cochabamba, and uh, one of the largest lakes in the world is right there at the bottom of the mountains. We come out one night, and... Uh, and there's these uh, uh, people with black cloaks on. I mean, it was weird. They're carrying torches, and they're going up into the hill, right? And so they're coming from near the, in South America, if you've ever been there, almost every time it has a central Catholic church somewhere, okay? And so they're coming down the street, going up in the hills. And, and I asked our, our interpreter, I said, what are they, where are they going? He said, well, they're going to sacrifice to the gods, the earth gods and, and, and Malak, and all these weird gods. Up in, I said, wait a minute, weren't these the same people that were in the Catholic church earlier today? And he said, 
Yeah, they were. He said, but that somehow they got mixed up to where they, they want to not miss a God, and it's okay to take all these other gods. And so they're, they're worshiping supposedly the God of the Bible and all these other earth gods at the same time. See, that sounds counterintuitive to our way of thinking. But I think a bigger problem is somewhere Israel had let their guard down, and they had forgotten what they're defending against. Um, you may recognize the name of Aquaba. Uh, in 1917, if anybody's ever seen Lawrence of Arabia, um, it's, it's all over that movie. Uh, but in 1917, it seemed impenetrable because any enemy vessel approaching from the port okay, would be battered by huge rounds coming off the cliffs. And so they had that covered. And behind them was the deadly desert, right? Uh, the Turks believed Aquaba was safe because nobody could cross the desert. I mean, they would die before they got there. So they didn't even worry about what was behind them. They were just looking what was in front of them. So if you've seen Lawrence of Arabia, he led a force of irregular Arab cavalry across the anvilous uh, sun of that desert. And together they rallied the support of local people. And on July 6th of 1917, their forces swept into Aquaba north from behind where they couldn't see them. And all of their guns were pointed in the opposite direction. See, I think sometimes our focus is in the wrong direction. And it's real easy to get off track when we're focused in the wrong direction. So what had happened? Well, there had been a heart forgetfulness in the nation of Israel. Okay, Whatever that was, Whether we talked about this in our community group uh, uh, this week. Did they really not know what had happened? I mean, I mean did they really, you know, well, it says they have forgotten. They, they didn't know. So whether it's a, a temporary amnesia, but they had decided to turn from him, okay, from God, from following him the way that they, they should have been, and, and just to forget him altogether. So in the Bible, remembering and forgetting have strong spiritual significance for you and I. So remembering and forgetting. So how are we going to remember what God had told us? How are we going to remember to do all these things? In fact, in, in Isaiah 64, 9, it says, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not your iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Okay, now this is interesting. When do we want God to remember us? When we're in trouble. We want him to remember us. I mean, this is what Isaiah is saying. Please, Lord, don't forget us, your people. You promised, right, to do good things to us, to give us this land. Don't forget us. Are we not like that by nature? We cry out to God when we're, when we're in desperate need. See, the remedy to heart, uh, heart forgetfulness, okay, is, is to realize that in the middle of that heart forgetfulness, okay, we need to be constantly reminded of who we are, but not only who we are, but whose we are. So how do we forget? I'm going to give you two ways this morning I think we forget. The first one is when our faith is not daily being tested. I think when we're not daily being tested. So you're going to notice this morning in the judges that he rose up, they would come and they would fight for Israel and then they would die. And it says they would have eight years, ten years, forty years of supposed peace, right? And so things were going pretty good. What happens when things are going good in our life? I believe we live in a culture and a time today, especially in the Bible belt of our culture in, in America, where people for whatever reason, do not, their faith has not truly been put to the test. Now, I would 
I would kind of disagree with that a little bit, what some of the experts say, because I do believe that if you're truly following God, your faith is going to be tested. I believe He does test our faith. So what happens when our faith is tested? We cry out to God. And, and even in the judging of the people, we cry out to God. And He sends the Israelites suffering. Okay, He enslaves them to their, to their enemies. And then they're like, oh yeah, God, I remember you did this thing for me way back here. Could, could you pull that off again one more time? Could you bring somebody else? Because we need help, right? So what, what brings renewal in our life? I think God reveals our flaws. I think when he reveals our flaws, we understand who we are. I think that's a big part of remembering is understanding our flaws and, and our eyes being open to the reality of what's going on out there. Um, so whether you've seen this movie or not, uh, there was a Matrix movie, the very first one, that came out. And there's an iconic scene in the Matrix movie. And just to give you a little background, uh, you have uh, this guy, Neo, who supposedly is living in the Matrix in this, this world that he can't see reality. So he's just going through his daily life, just living, not really seeing what's going on all around him. And then you have this other guy, Morpheus, who who sees everything. He knows everything. And so he comes to Neo, and he says, you have a choice to make. You can either open your eyes to the reality of what is around you, or you can live in a fairy tale land. You can go back to the way life was. So he offers him these two pills, red and a blue. So the blue one, you get to stay here. But if you, if you take the red one, okay, then you're going to go down a rabbit hole and we're going to see how far it goes because you're going to see things as they really are. See, I think one of the bigger problems many times in our life, and I believe it was with Israel too, is that he didn't see the grievous sins they were doing at the time they're doing them, right? They didn't see how desperate their need was. So what flaws in us does God need to reveal? What, what spiritually flaws does he need to reveal in our life? I think that's part of our growth process. And so I believe we have a, a kingdom syndrome. That means we're ready to, to name anybody king, right, in our culture today. So, so let me give you some and see if you can name the person this goes with. So who do they call the king of basketball? LeBron James. Okay, if you're not a basketball fan, you wouldn't know that. Uh, who is known as the king of rock and roll? Elvis Presley, right? Who do they call the king of pop? Michael Jackson. Uh, who's the king of country? Okay, you would say that. They say Hank Williams was actually the king of country, but yeah, you're, you're a good Texan. Um, this one, this one surprised me a little bit, but, um, who is the, who is the, the king of golf? Arnold Palmer. Yeah, they would call Arnold Palmer the king. So we're ready to put somebody up on that pedestal. We're quick to set people up as king in this culture. And it was no different in Israel, okay? In fact, you're going to read at the end of it, what are they going to want? They're going to want a king. They're like, give us a king, Lord. We don't like your plan because your plan, it causes us to suffer. It causes us to have to work. See, we want everything for nothing. How do we remember what God has done for us at times of crisis of faith and being tested? Well, I think there are several things. We have some very visual reminders in our church tradition. A couple of those are um, the Lord's Supper. 
That's why we take communion. We take the Lord's Supper. And you remember, we use the words, we do this in what? In remembrance of Him. That's a remembrance. Uh, we're going to have, oh, by the way, I meant to say, next Sunday we're going to have a baptism here at the Journey Church. Okay? Uh, so you will not want to miss our baptism. It will be in this service too, by the way, if you're able to come. Uh, but baptism is one of those two. So what do we do in baptism? We say you're buried with Christ and you're raised to walk in a new life. That's a reminder that we have new life in Christ. Whenever we read the Bible, what? We remember we read the stories. We read the things. This is, by the way, this is not merely an academic book, okay? I read lots of books academically, but you can't read the Bible that way because what happens if you read it just like any other academic book? It's, it's just going to fly right through. You're not going to get what it's all about. We acknowledge the truth, but we also remember that some of the truths in this book, what? They don't make sense. We don't, we don't understand why. I wouldn't have done it that way, but God's doing it that way. Right? So we don't understand that in our thinking. And we also experience community. We're not brought into faith to live alone. See, all these are daily, constant reminders of who we are. So how God brings about that renewal, that revival in our life, and the model was through a judge. So God sends his messenger. So look at the first one. I'm not going to read all of this for you. But the, the, the first one that he raises up is Othniel. Okay, Othniel is son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So this is your prototypical judge. He comes out of the nation of Israel. This is a good, clean-cut Jewish guy straight out of the, the, the lineage uh, of Abraham in that, you know, uh, in the tribal uh, culture. So this was you know, your prototypical guy. And so he comes up, and, and it says... Um, he defeats all their enemies before them. But when the people of Israel cried out to God, God raises them up. And then the Spirit of the Lord, it says, was on him. And he judged Israel. He went out to war. And the Lord gave, okay, the king of Mesopotamia into his hands. So the land had rest for what? Forty years. Then Othniel dies, okay? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so um, notice something different. Who did the Spirit fall on? The judge, right? It didn't fall on everybody. This is the difference between New Testament and Old Testament. In the New Testament, okay, the Spirit comes to all believers, okay? But it, in the Old Testament, you'll have situations, whether it's a prophet or, or it's one of these judges, where the Spirit of God comes and it falls on them, and they judge. So the process of renewal is first God sends trouble, He sends a champion, a Savior. And then God sends the spirit of restoration and victory in their life. But it wasn't enough for the nation of Israel because they go back to the cycle of sinning. In verse 11, uh, we understand uh, that, that all, all human okay, components that are involved in anything fail. Okay? If it's not of God, then it's not going to truly bring what we think it's going to bring. Uh, and in, fa in fact, um, Revelation 1.19 uh, you know, John writes, I, I am the living God, the one. Uh, I was dead, and behold, I, I am alive, and I live forevermore. So there's only one king, and there's only one God, and he is always on his throne. So now you have the unlikely judge. Now this is a guy some of you may have never heard of. And so they cried out to God, okay, and he brings another judge as he cries out, and, and this judge is Ehud, Ehud the son of Gera. Ever heard of Ehud? Good old, good old Ehud, right? 
No, you probably wouldn't, right? Because he didn't come out of that nice Jewish lineage. He didn't. He didn't. He wasn't a clean-cut Jewish boy, you know. And and notice, it doesn't say that the Spirit of the Lord came on him. It just said he went and crafted a two-edged sword. Okay. Um, now I do know a little bit about sword play. Okay. Why would you create a double-edged sword? Does the max amount of damage because you're you're I mean when you thrust it in it's gonna and you can slash both ways with it it's, it's it's got a lot of uses so he made his own sword and so he goes to this King Eglon okay and it says King Eglon was a very fat man okay I'm not saying that to be unkind it's in the Bible it says he was a very very large man right because he had been gaining all these indulgences off the people probably been eating pretty well too. So Ehud comes to King Eglon, and he wants to offer um, you know, some things to him in, in uh, honor of him. And so he, he offers some of these indulgences to the king because he's an indulgent king. And this king must have really been full of himself, okay? Because he says, and by the way, king, I have a secret message for you. Oh, wait, wait. i got to tell you before that, um, notice it says he's a left-handed man, Okay? So this is interesting. Uh, most scholars believe the reason that it was pointed out that he used his left hand is because he had a deformity as well. So not only was he not from the lineage, not from that line, but also um, he couldn't use his right hand. He possibly had some type of deformity that caused him to have to use his left hand because when they trained soldiers, I, I hate to tell you, my wife's left-handed and she thinks everybody should be, but in that day and time in that culture, Everybody used their right hand to fight with sword play. There wasn't, you didn't do a left-handed thing. It wouldn't have been a training thing. And notice it says when he goes in to meet King Eglon, that he straps the sword where? On his right side. Okay, this is interesting. So if, um, if you're going into battle, typically you would strap the sword on the side of your dominant hand or the hand you're using to do sword play. Okay, so typically it would have been on the right. Okay, but they could tell possibly that his right was deformed and he was only had one hand to use, so they would have checked his left side, not his right. Okay, but it says he strapped on his right so he could grab it, okay, and conceal that weapon as he went in to meet King Eglon. Now, so he tells King Eglon, he said, I have a special message for you. And he's like, everybody out. So it clears the room, right? So it's just him and this man. And it says that he took the sword and he thrust it into uh, the belly of this king. And it said that the, the fat folds <laughs> folded around it. So apparently, I guess he couldn't get the sword out. So he just left it there, right? Now, here's kind of the gross part of this whole thing. I, I asked some of my leadership, I said, can I use the literal term? And it, it's in there. It's probably not a highly biblically used term but it says and the dung came out of him okay so this is important to the story because his servants outside didn't go in to check on him when he hadn't come out why well they probably smelled it right they're thinking he's in the bathroom he's using the facilities we don't want to interrupt the king at all that could be bad for us and so then Ehu came, and he led the nation of Israel into a great victory. What is the deal with all this? God chooses an assassin, somebody who sneaks in. He doesn't go in like most of the judges. 
He doesn't even give him necessarily great powers like Samson. He didn't give him all these other things. Notice all the judges from Ahud onward, okay, um, point us towards Christ. I mean, they, they, they have a very clear message there. I believe God uses left-handed deliverers to save a left-handed people, okay? Stick with me. God uses a left-handed deliverer to save a left-handed people. We are flawed people. We need saving. I, I, I don't think this was by accident. I also believe God uses people who are at the margin of our society. You look at the great people throughout the history of the Bible that God has used. He's used many men that, that would not have been the ones that you and I would have chosen. He used a tax collector. You know, he used uh, a guy who was a mercenary, a persecutor of Christians, was uh, the enforcer, right, uh, to try to exterminate Christianity. He wrote over half of the New Testament. God uses those who are in the margins. So the second way I think we fall into forgetfulness is when our lives are not daily being consecrated to God. Okay? So, so what does that mean, not being consecrated to God? Well, what is consecration? Well, to be consecrated means to set something aside. So you're dedicating something aside for a specific, specific purpose and use. It also refers to a personal act of, of dedication or, and I want you to get this word, allegiance, Right? And so we know in the New Testament we're called to be what? Ambassadors of Christ. But we're called to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. Everything we have is to go to Him. And so we're to have this allegiance for Him. So let me ask you a question. I'm, I'm kind of looking at ages in here a little bit. Uh, how many of you remember where you were on 9-11 when the Twin Towers went down? Yeah. I guarantee you, everybody, you know, we don't forget that, do we? I remember where I was. I was... Uh, a student pastor, and we were having a bunch of youth come to the church that night, and I was getting ready for an event, and I just showed up to church, and I had no idea what was going on. And all of our staff were huddled around a television, and they were watching this. Why do we remember that so clearly? It's horrible. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's something that, you, I mean, it sets with you. It doesn't go away. I, I think for us to, to consider that something like that can happen here, in our country. Do you remember what happened after that? What happened the months after that? Man, there was a surge of allegiance in our country. People were flying their flags. They say more people joined the military during those months than any other time. There was a surge in that because why? People want, we want to go out and get Al-Qaeda. People were on fire to go fight. They, they didn't even know what that looked like, but let's go. We're ready. Suit us up. So we are 19 going on 20 years removed from that. Is it that way today? Do people have that view and that feeling today? And I don't, I don't say this is a political statement in any way, just let you know. But I do believe somewhere along the way, we forget. We forget. Now, we may remember where we were when that happened. But we forget that. We forget what that, what that was like and, and, and the allegiance we had to our country and all of these things. So let me ask you another question. Where were you guys on A.D. 30, 30, or 33? Anybody there? No. A.D.? No, you, you weren't alive in A.D. 30 or 33, right? Well, they believe that's when Jesus Christ was crucified, sometime around there. Okay, if he lived 30 to 33 years, it would have been during that time. 
What about when you first realized your need for Jesus Christ in your life? Do you remember the time you became a believer? I hope you do. I'm not saying you have to remember the day, the hour, the second, the minute, but I don't forget that. I mean, I remember when, um, as an eight-year-old boy, sitting in in uh, in First Baptist Church of Spring Lake Earth, Texas, a little country church, in a revival, and I remember for the first time, you know, I grew up in a home with a mom and dad who took me to church, and they taught me the right things, but I just assumed I was a believer. And for the first time, I was convicted of the sin in my life. Why do we, we remember those things? Well, I think the reason we are consecrated and we lose that sense of being consecrated to God is because we, and trust me, I'm, this, in theology, we understand that we are saved not of our own works or, or what we do, right? We're saved by the mercy and the grace of God alone. So he calls and draws us, okay? But somewhere, we just, it's a one and done thing, right? We're saved, I got it, I got Jesus in my life, and then we just kind of check out and we live our lives however we want to live it. See, we are consecrated or set a point apart at that point of conversion. But we also are daily being created into his likeness. And this is what I believe Israel forgot, is that daily consecration. I believe, yes, we're set apart at the time of our conversion, but Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, through the forgiveness according to his riches and grace, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known the mysteries of his will according to his purpose and his plan and his fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and earth. So the completed process hasn't happened yet, right? That's what Paul is telling Ephesus. He's saying, it is, you're going to, one of these days, all of this is going to culminate. In fact, Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. So we make a conscious, willing decision daily to dedicate our life to Him. And what that dedication looks like, it's a consecration that involves our will, our intellect, and our affections. It involves all that we are. It's our will, right, first. That's, that's who we are to the core. You know, I decide today, you know, that, that I'm going to follow Christ as my Lord. And then my intellect knows what He has done for me. But then my affections are being drawn closer to Him. That's why we, we talked about last week, if we draw closer to Him, He's going to draw closer to us. So what had happened to the nation of Israel? They've forgotten that, Right? Because they thought they, could, they thought they could follow these other gods and do these other things. So let's put in a cultural context today. What do people follow? They follow popular opinion. Man, it's just like herding a bunch of cattle. Let's go. Let's just follow what, what popular opinion says, right? And we don't, we don't even think. And sometimes it's almost like these, uh, these mindless drones, right? We, we don't think for ourselves. We, we, don't, we don't read the Bible. We don't search out God. The way we used to so what are the weapons of your warfare and this is where i want to close this morning i think there are four ways that we prepare ourselves for the battle by the way if you didn't know it you're in a battle the bible's clear about that in fact uh we're told also that that we don't fight against flesh and blood right and we're not at war with each other okay so that's why i said i'm not at war with my brother i'm not at war with, with this culture, I'm in a battle against Satan and his armies that want to destroy me. The first one is daily time focused on communion with God. 
daily time focused on my communion with God. So do we spend time with God just read our verse of the day or a chapter out of the Bible, or do we commune with God? So what does that mean to commune with God? Well, communion is God's communication to us, okay? And it's coupled with our response to Him, okay? So, so you, have, you have a two-way thing. So, so God's communication to us through His Word, but it's also our response to Him. And so why do we commune with God? Well, John Piper says commune with God is the end for which you were created. It's the end for which you and I were created. Did you know that? We were created to commune with God. If you're not communing with God, you're missing why God made you. Why God from the foundation of the earth created you. Many times, yes, our sin gets in the way of our being able to commune with God. So the sin in the world destroys communion with God. And it's desirous to destroy that communion with God. That's, that's what sin does in our life. And so how do, how do we experience communion? Well, we do not need to go you know, um, on a three-day retreat, spiritual retreat, to commune with God. I'm not saying those are bad. I've been on many spiritual retreats. I've been uh, to many camps, many conferences, many events. But we don't, you don't even necessarily, and I'm not, I'm not, discouraging people from coming to church i think we should assemble together as a body of christ but for some people this sunday morning if you're listening live streaming at home this is the only communion with god you do all week long you, you this is it let me i've i gave my hour in fact i had a gentleman years ago he said all right god here's your hour this is the hour i give to god i call it my hour of power i'm gonna come in for one hour i give god that time and I wonder, is that really communion with God? What does communion with God do? I think there, there are a few things. I think it cultivates a greater hunger for His Word. We desire His Word every day, more in our life. Um, so I disciple men. I'm really passionate about discipling other men. And I had a, man, I had a really good teacher at the end of my seminary career encourage me. He said, uh, gentlemen, Every year as a pastor, you need to be discipling somebody. And so I, I've taken that to heart. And one of the things we do first is go through how to read this book. How do you read the Bible, right? We just assume when somebody becomes a Christian, you give them a Bible and they know how to read it, right? And so we begin to walk through that. And, and they, at first, it's, it's a little arduous process to read the Bible and understand what you're reading and discern that. But you know what I found out? The longer they do that, they gain a hunger for Scripture. And they're like, man, I want to read more. Give me more of that. It's also taking the Lord's Supper. We talk about that regularly. But also seeking opportunities to do mission, to help people. I encourage Christians all the time, go on a mission trip. You should. If you're a believer in Christ and you've never served on mission somewhere, I would encourage you to do that. Go serve him on mission and also seek refuge in God through prayer. Galatians 4, 6 says, He has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We desire that. The second thing is daily appropriation of the gospel to our lives. How are we daily appropriating the gospel into our lives? 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. In fact, I think I have one of these. I got it, uh, by the way, went to a men's conference. And it says, Never quit on it if you ever wonder in 2 Timothy 4 7 okay so I want to read you what Paul said in a letter to Timothy towards the end of his ministry this is 2 Timothy 4 6 through 8 he says for I am already being poured out as a drink offering 
and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So notice he says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. So what is the gospel? I think sometimes we miss what the gospel is. So we think the gospel many times is just for the lost. We think it's just something that we give to somebody who's lost, right? I've already got the gospel. I got it, right? Well, I think we daily need to be appropriating the gospel in our life. No, God's grace is not cutting someone some slack. It's not letting them off the hook. Grace is more than just kindness or benevolent deeds or acts. So many of us view the gospel merely as a message, okay? But it's more than just a message. Justification is not merely a past event in your life. That's what will happen if it just becomes a message. It's just a past event. It is a daily present reality. And that's why daily we're called to go to the cross. Did Jesus not say to be crucified with him? We're to daily be crucified with Christ. We're to daily take up our cross and to follow him daily. And so justification, yes, it's, it's a past uh, coming into fruition through the cross of Christ in our life, but it's also a present reality every day I need and you need. The third thing, a uh, weapon of our warfare is daily commitment to God as a living sacrifice. If you've been here any time, you could probably tell me my favorite verse because I use it a lot. One of my favorite texts uh, is in Romans 12:1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So what does it mean to commit to God as a living sacrifice? So this verse says that I appeal to you by the mercy of God that you present yourself as a living sacrifice. So go Old Testament. What was the nation of Israel doing? Well, they, were, they should have been sacrificing to God, okay? So when they wanted God to, to bless them, they would go bring their sacrifice, and they would lay them on the altar. But even before that, okay, there were different kinds of sacrifices. But what this is talking about is a whole animal sacrifice. So it means the whole animal, every part of that animal was burned up on the altar of God, okay? So when the, the, this is the picture. I want you to get the clear picture. He is saying we place ourselves on that altar of God, okay? So we say, God, here am I. Remember in, uh, in uh, Isaiah 6, that when Isaiah, at the end of his vision with God, God said, who will go for me? Who should I send? Remember what Isaiah said? Here I am, Lord. Send me, right? Well, what is he saying? He's saying, I am completely available to you. See, our tendency is at the moment of high spiritual emotion to say, Lord, I'll give my life to you. This is what the Israelites did. They said, God, we'll do anything for you. We'll go in and we'll, we'll conquer for you, right? But in the moments of our weakness, are we willing to give everything to you? And then I want to take another word. He says present, right? What does that mean? Present means to give or put the disposal at the disposal of somebody else. So this is make him Lord, right? God, here I am, Lord, send me. I am at your disposal. Whatever you want to do with me, you do, Lord, right? And so we understand in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, he says, you are not your own. 
you were bought with a price. He says, glorify God with your body. So God is not asking us to just loan ourselves to him. It's not a rental deal. It's not, hey, God, let me just rent myself to you for a while. I'm alone, right? But when I want this body, this self back, I'm going to take it back for myself. That's not Christianity. That's not the way it works. We never outgrow our desperate need for Christ. You and I never outgrow that. Um, I have two children, son and a daughter. Uh, they're grown. My son's up there, by the way. And uh, you know, you would think raising ends when your kids leave the house. Those are your parents. Does it end when they leave home? Well, partly, but not completely. Okay, I will always be their father. Okay, I, I will always be their earthly dad. And I don't, I don't follow after them and make sure they're brushing their teeth every day, even though maybe they need me to do that at times, but I don't do that, okay? I don't tuck them in at night. I don't make sure they've done their homework on time. However, Troy being home from college, I've probably checked in on him a couple of times, okay? But we don't do that, okay? But I'm still their father, okay? And so they don't ever outgrow the need for dad, okay? I hope they don't. Okay, it's the same way with our Heavenly Father. We don't outgrow our desperate need for Him. And the last one, number four, a firm belief in the sovereignty and love of God. So what is sovereignty? Um, kind of interesting, I, I mentioned that this morning. I, I started doing these little vlogs as I come in because there's just some words that I try to define uh, if you're interested in that. But one of them that sometimes is difficult to define is the sovereignty of God. Now, we know mentally for somebody to be sovereign is what? They're in control. Okay, they're in charge. So a sovereign nation, um, like if you're part of the, the whole uh, royal lineage in England, okay, you have the sovereignty of the throne. Okay, even though now they don't have the power they used to have. But used to have, they ruled sovereignly, right? What they said went. See, that's sovereign control over everything. So in Lamentations 3, 37 through 38, it says, Who has spoken and it comes to pass unless the Lord commands it? So this sovereignty of God, it is always God that, that, that wills it to happen, right? Note, so much of, of the pain of life is caused by the sins sometimes of others, but sometimes of ourselves. Does God sometimes will bad things to come upon people to teach them? Well, have you read what we've been reading? <laughs> he does, right? That's hard for people to take. People don't like a God who would, who would put somebody into captivity or will those things to happen. Well, why does he do that? Why does all of this happen? Well, failure to believe in the sovereignty of God brings us from turning away from him. It brings greater bitterness in our life. I mean, you look at Joseph, the end of Joseph's life in, in Genesis 50, 20. He says, well, and if you know the story of Joseph, his brothers sold him into captivity, and at the end of all of this, he raised up to second only to Pharaoh, okay, in the, in the nation of Egypt, and his father's now died, and his brothers are afraid that all this retribution is going to come on them, right? And he says, hey, bro, let me tell you something. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. See, even the worst situation God uses for his good. So how do we do this? Well, he wants to conform us into his likeness. That's what this whole process is. He wants to conform you and me into his likeness every day and to keep us in his care. 
There are two things I know about God. God will never take away the gospel from his people, okay? He's never going to take that away from you. See, in the moment of difficult days in your life and my life, we still stand firm on the grace of God alone, okay? And in fact, it says he has what? Clothed you in righteousness. Think about that. Being clothed in the righteousness of God. He has clothed you. Your sins are forgiven even in the middle of your doubts. The second thing I know about God is God will never take away his promises. God's promises are sure. They stand the test of time. He is the same today, tomorrow, and throughout all eternity. His promises will never fail you. So we're called to to persevere, not just endure to the end. I think sometimes we think we want to skip all this and get to the end. And I'm with you. There are times and days, and trust me, the older I get, I just rather skip all this. Let's go to the end, Lord. Just, just take me, okay? I'm ready. But there's a reason he has you where you're at. That's why Paul said, I want to go back to what he said. He said, I'm poured out as a drink offering. Have you poured yourself out to the point that you've given all you can for the Lord? I honestly can say I haven't. There are times I haven't given everything that, that God uh, desires of me. See, the word endurance means to stand firm, but we need to do more than just stand firm. Sometimes what do we do? Just pull yourself up, our boots up. Right, I'm just going to stand firm, Lord. I'm just going to stand right here. Did you know you weren't created to stand in place? You were created to move forward. That's perseverance. That's moving forward. Continue moving forward. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9, we have the iconic text of, of uh, when Jesus was asked in the New Testament, what is the greatest commandment? Here's what he said. And, and I'm going to read what, what, um, what he gave the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I commanded you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. So uh, I want you to write three words down. And these, these are simple ones. These are things that all of us as believers should daily adhere to. Okay? And I think sometimes we forget. And they're the simplest of terms. Okay? So let's, let's write heart, okay, soul, and strength. And I want to give you why in the Christian life these are the most significant things we can do on a daily basis. So notice when he talks about the heart, he says we love God with all of our heart, okay? But we're also taught that, okay? It's a daily teaching. So when we're in the Word, when we're following Him, our hearts are being changed. They're being transformed, okay? And so he says love God with all your heart. The command shall be what? On your hearts, Okay, so when I go out into the world, the culture I live in, okay, my heart needs to be changed. It needs to be affected with the gospel of Christ daily. What about soul? You know, soul is probably one of the most significant words in all of this. They believe that was your total being. That's everything you are. That is your soul. That's what makes you you. He said you should teach them diligently to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, parents. You need to be discipling your kids. You need to be talking to them about the gospel of Christ. And he said, and there's, your children are never too young to start that. 
You need to saturate them with that. And then strength. And he says you bind them as signs on your hand. And notice he says frontlets on your foreheads. And then he ends with doorposts of your house and your gates. Okay? What was significant about the doorposts? Remember back in the nation when they were enslaved in Egypt, right? That they put the blood of the ram over that doorpost. And, and the angel of death passed over those house, those houses, right? So that they would be saved. There is something strong in the doorpost of your houses, right? I, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about your home, okay, or that place, but I, I don't think he's just talking about a physical doorpost, okay? Uh, I, I know that's, there's lots of symbols and signs in the Old Testament, but I also believe we're, we're to build a foundation with our life, right? And so I think that's at the heart of who you are. Do you, do you, do you write that on the doorpost of your heart in your life every day? Where's your heart? Where's your soul? Where's your strength? My prayer is that daily, we are picking up the weapons of our warfare and we're living in such a way that glorifies God with our life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, God, that in all we are, all we have, all we say, all we do, God, that you are so much greater. And Father, I pray we would never become like the nation of Israel to where we just forget, God, that where our allegiance truly is, that we're not living our lives completely and wholly for you. Father, I pray you would take us this day and you would consecrate our lives, consecrate our hearts, Father. Put us in a place of complete, um, complete dedication to you, Father. Heart, mind, and soul. Everything we are, Father, I pray we go to you this morning to the throne of God. And I pray for the days and times that we forget that and we, we are weak, God, and we fail. I pray that you would, you would strengthen us, God, renew us. And help us to live our lives, Father, in a way that glorifies and honors you every day of our lives. We love you so much, Father. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.